You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2014. Today's episode is titled, Building Organizations Practically. When the New Testament was written during the first century, the Roman Empire dominated much of the known world, including the Middle East. The men who were God's agents in writing the New Testament lived in the Middle East. They lived in a culture that was shaped by a Roman worldview. One of the traits of a first century Roman worldview was that the Roman citizens did not work. Work was the purview of slaves. Therefore, when the Apostle Paul wrote of masters and slaves, he was referring to employers and employees. No organization will enjoy lasting success unless it is built according to the will and ways of God. One of the key ways to align with the will and ways of God is to understand delegated authority. To achieve enduring success, employers and managers must always function knowing they will ultimately give an account to God for their actions. Obedience to the will and ways of God in the context of delegated authority is the only way to true success. And the only way to live obediently is to be empowered by Christ. Therefore, to build enduring, excellent organizations requires submission to divinely ordained authority throughout the organization and empowerment by Christ to live accordingly. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Building Organizations Practically. Well, good evening, everyone. It's been a full day, I trust, for all of you. And uh, so this will be a challenge to keep you alert, keep you awake. So I will, I'll attempt to do that. So I've got to be somewhat entertaining, although I'm not naturally entertaining. <laughs> now, there are some people that say just my natural disposition is entertaining. But I don't intend to be entertained. Okay? I, want, I really want to impart to you something uh, very rich, uh, robust, uh, hopefully very uh, practical. I use that word with a little bit of reservation. Uh, I was speaking at a breakfast not too long ago, and I was talking about money. And I went through a, a biblical worldview of money, starting with you know the philosophy of money and the you know, how money is to be used and why it's to be used that way. And then at the end, I gave him some tips. And this man came up to me and said, you know, um, I appreciate all you said, but if you'd have just eliminated that first 50 minutes and just done that last five minutes, I'd been real happy. He just wanted the tips. And my comment to him as well, if I'd have done that, you probably would never have understood the tips. You wouldn't have been able to apply the tips. So you have to have some foundation from which to apply the practice. So I, I'm going to try to give you some foundation, but we are going to try to be practical. And I want to ask you some questions so you have to get your mind in gear. Because you're probably going to be uh, challenged with some questions that you haven't thought about. Is that okay? Yeah. You, can you handle something new, something fresh? Okay. Well, let me just tell you kind of where I want to go here. And by the way, this is my first attempt to do a PowerPoint on iPad. I am so thrilled that Microsoft finally put their office tools on the iPad. I just can't believe it. I just like this has been a and a glorious week <laughs> as I've been able to explore, you know, a new dimension of the iPad. I'd actually been thinking about getting some kind of Windows, you know, machine so I could run Office, but now that iPad runs Office, I'm set. I'm in good shape. Okay, so we're going to talk about starting right, which is uh, Kingdom Foundations. So that's a little bit theoretical. We're going to talk about doing a kingdom, which is operating principles. That's much more practical. And then even more, hearing God at work. 
And finally, understanding the fivefold equipping gifts. Now, how many of you really believe we're going to get through all of that? <laughs> I, I really doubt it myself, but I, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to give you the best of whatever we can do in the next uh, 50 minutes, 55 minutes or so. So let's talk about starting right. Kingdom foundations. First thing we have to get it is that God owns it all. Now that sounds so trivial. It's like, really? Well, yeah, he created it all. So he owns it all. I've actually been in conversations with people in the past that really have objected to this. And they said, no, it's my business. It's my money. And I can do it as I please. I said, oh, really? And before you were born, whose money was it? Before you came along, whose business was it? Well, they didn't exist. Okay, well, who brought you into existence? You know, so we have a conversation like that, and pretty soon they realize, well, yeah, I guess, you know, there's something behind me that's really driving all this. It isn't all about me. God created the universe. There's a foundational reality for all of us. In the beginning, God. First day I went, I walked into the first physics lecture I ever took. The professor walks in, and he grabs a, a marker, and he gets on the board, and he writes, F equal M-A. That was the starting point of my physics career right there, that, that formula. Now, where did that come from? Some of you have had physics, should, should know. That's one of Newton's laws, right? You don't remember that? Well, you're going to flunk if you don't remember that. That's not going to work. Well, where did Newton get that? Where did it come from? Just out of thin air? Did you know Newton was a theologian? Wrote a lot of theology. Very godly man. He pondered the universe thinking with a presupposition that in the beginning God... And he began to try to discern what it is that God put into his universe. How does it work? And so that's just a little picture of the reality in all of us that in the beginning God is a foundational reality. Now here's the challenge. If you answer in the beginning incorrectly, it's going to lead you down a wrong road. If you say in the beginning is me, then you are your authority. You are the one, you are self-created and you self-defined. And that will lead you down the road of humanism. If you answer, in the beginning is Allah, then you walk around the road of the Muslim worldview. If in the beginning is Buddha, you walk down the Buddhist worldview. So however you answer that question now defines the reality from which you live. The only correct answer is in the beginning God. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. This is saying it's all his. Whatever business you think you own, you are stewarding his business. Whatever assets that you think you have, you are stewarding his assets. And so our job is to get really clear that he owns it all and we are simply stewards. Since God created everything, he must own everything. Whatever authority and stewardship we have is a trust to us. And here's a text in 1 Corinthians 4. <clears> that to me, is such a poignant text to this point that we're simply stewards. 
Paul in this portion of the book is defending himself from charges that are being made against him by other people that are coming into the Corinthian congregation and trying to discredit Paul. And so he starts in chapter 4 talking and defending himself. And in verse 7 he says this, Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So you look at yourself and you say, well, gee, I'm really good at this, or I'm really good at that, or look what I've accumulated and look what I've built. Well, what do you have that you did not receive? See, it's not you. It's God working through you. It's God giving you talents and abilities. It's God giving you opportunities. It's God giving you favor. It's God opening the doors for you. And see, it's hard for us to get there. Because most of us, if we're really honest, we believe that somewhere or another, God is really not that interested in business. And that's how we act. What happens when something goes seems to go wrong in the workplace. We start getting panicky, don't we? Start getting fearful, start scrambling. Got to find a way to fix this. This is the, we're, we're in trouble here. I was in Asia a few years ago, and I was talking to an audience of business people, and I could sense that there was a lot of dualism going on, just like I sense right now. You know what dualism is? That's where we bifurcate spiritual and physical reality and we make spiritual reality the ultimate reality. Physical reality is really almost bad. You know, it's, it's, it's here and we got to do it, but it's bad. It's not good. That's what dualism is. Now, dualism has been around a long time. And it's still here in spades. So I'm talking to this audience in Asia. And I sensed this was going on, so I asked them a question. I said, tell me how you solve problems in the workplace. I said, oh, well, that's easy. Well, we, we get the problem, we analyze it, and we look at the pros and cons. We evaluate all the various you know, options in front of us, and we, we you know, kind of weigh them all, and then we figure out what, what is it that is the best option, gives the most return for our effort, solves the problem the best with the least you know, bad effects. That's how we do it. I said, okay. I said, you guys are involved in your churches. They said, yes. How do you solve a problem in a church? Oh, oh, we, we pray. Oh, I said, really? So why do you solve problems differently in your church versus your business? And so they were able immediately to say, oh, yeah, why would we do that? Well, that's a symptom of the dualism in us. We all have it. Now, see, I was very kind to you. I didn't pull that on you. I could have pulled that on you, see? That might have convicted you. Well, the point is, you've got to recognize you are a steward. What do you have... That you did not receive. You didn't make yourself. You didn't give yourself your talents and your abilities. You didn't place yourself in the family you're in. You're not, you didn't place yourself in the context that you're in. You didn't place yourself in the society and the time frame that you lived. All this stuff was given to you. And God wants you to steward it. He wants you to steward it according to his will and his ways. So God owns it all. Now, let's talk about another, another, another foundational reality, and that is authority. Now, that is a pretty negative word today. We're in a culture that's largely characterized by philosophers as, call, as, as postmodern. 
Now, postmodernism is really not new. It's been around for well over 100 years. And the reason postmodernism is called what it is, is about three or 400 years ago, modernism rose up. And modernism countered Christianity as a worldview. It said, we no longer have a need for a God hypothesis. Now we can explain reality by natural law. All we have to do, we have just uncover the natural law driving any situation. Doesn't matter what it is, there's a natural explanation. And so naturalism posed and, and presented itself to the world as the solution for answering all the questions of, of creation and existence. Well, it wasn't long before they start running into problems. You know, they, one of the big problems that they ran into is they could not explain, you know, the whole the meaning of life, the purpose of life. Because, see, naturalism inherently is atheistic. It's atheistic because it's trying to explain reality without God. And so when you lose God, you have nothing to tie significance to your life to. Your life is just a random event. It's just here. And so when they could not answer that question well, eventually skepticism came in. And when skepticism came in, basically this led to postmodernism. Postmodernists said, you modernists can't answer all the questions of life. You can't even answer the question of meaning in life. So we're, forget you, we're going to go on and develop a new philosophy. That's led to postmodernism. Now, postmodernism has kept a lot of naturalism. But it's, it's rejected some, too. And what is rejected, one of the key things it's rejected, is authority. And now we live in a culture where no one wants to be under authority. Dennis and I played golf yesterday. I say we played golf. We were on the golf course. <laughs> I don't know if you call what we did golf. But I got through, and when Dennis finishes playing golf, he hasn't had enough punishment. He has to go on the driving range. <laughs> And hit balls for another 20 or 30 minutes. Well, I said, well, my, my golf muscles are tired. I said, you go hit. I'll just go sit in the cart and watch you. Well, one of my buddies happens to be on the driving range, and he sees me. So he walks over, and he wants to talk. He's a gregarious kind of guy, so he's talking to me and telling me all about his retirement. He's retired, and, and now he's just uh, he dabbles in the stock market in the morning, and he goes in the afternoon. He says, I just go, I go do what I want to do. When I want to do it, how I want to do it. I am unconstrained. I'm not accountable to anybody. Well, that's, that's a very postmodern mentality. Of course, I didn't want to mess up his apple cart and start really quizzing him about that. Because furthermore, I didn't want to get into a line of conversation because I wanted to go eat lunch and waiting for Dennis to finish hitting balls. But no, I was just teasing there. But anyway, it's a great picture, a great picture of postmodernism. It's, it's infected. It's infectious, and it's infected all of us. And one of the key ways it shows up is in the stewardship idea. This is the uh, Dominion Mandate here. And Dominion Mandate, all of you, I think you all, if you're around this organization, you're pretty familiar with it. So I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to point you to it and point out specifically the word Dominion that's used here. This is the New King James Version. Other texts uh, translate this word Rada as rule, and that's a very valid translation. The word Rada, which is the Hebrew word, means to rule or have dominion, or to dominate, to tread down, to subjugate, to cause to be dominant, to scrape out. These are different ways to kind of look at this, but you can see 
There's work here. There's effort that goes into this. This is what we have been created to do is to dominate, to rule, to scrape out, to discover how God's universe works. And so we have authority from God to do that. He has given us that authority. He said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule, let them dominate. So if you go on down, he says, God said to man, be fruitful and multiply. This is a commissioning statement. Go be fruitful and multiply. Now tell me this. Can you do that by yourself? When he's saying be fruitful and multiply, he's saying, I have given you the capacity to do this. And now I'm charging you, go do it. You see, the authority came from him. The power comes from him. The commissioning comes from him. This is a commissioning statement. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, I want you to exercise the authority I'm giving you to rule this creation. And so we have to get very clear. He owns it all. And he has deputized us to be sub-stewards under him to steward it. So this text provides a biblical basis and authority for advancement through business. Now let me just take a moment to think about this. What is Under what authority do you go and start a company, an organization? What authority do you have to do that? Now, most of us don't even think at that level. We think, well, gee, I need to make money. And I don't want to be, I don't work for somebody else. I want to be self-employed. I want to be free. Now, those of you that started companies, have you figured out that you're not free? <laughs> you think you own the company, the company owns you? You figured that out? Those of you that haven't walked that road, we'll give you a tip. That's the reality. When you start an organization... You better look really hard and see, have I received a building permit? Has God authorized this, or am I just doing this in my flesh? Now, you you guys know what the statistics are relative starting organizations, don't you? It's pretty simple to see. How many of you know about venture capital? Some of you know about venture capital. How many companies... Out of 10 companies, how many companies does a venture capital expect will succeed? They'll invest in 10. How many do they think will really succeed well? They're looking for one. Two or three kind of, you know, okay, half of them or more are going to be a bust, flat bust. So what's the, what's the odds? It's 90% against you. I remember I did, I did a, a seminar a few years ago on the keys to starting a successful business. And um, one of the guys in our church uh, got, the, got the recording, and he listened to it, and he said, after I listened to it, it just got depressing. I said, why was it depressing? He said, because it sounded like there was just no hope. I said, you didn't hear what I said. What you heard was the statistics. You heard 90% fail. That's what you heard. What you didn't hear is that 
what you want to do is ask the Lord, do I have a building permit to do this? If I have a building permit to do it, now I'm lining up with his will and his ways. And he tells us in texts like Matthew 6.33 that if you seek first the kingdom, which is the will of God, and his righteousness, which is the ways of God, I'll take care of everything else. Does that sound like it might be successful? I think that's one of the keys for success right there. Lining up with his will and his ways opens the door for you to succeed in what you do. So we have to understand as a foundational reality, as a part of our worldview, that we are under the we're under we're operating under authorized or authorized stewardship or authority from God. We don't operate based on our own authority. We operate on delegated authority from Him, and we do things that He directs us to do. So here's here's another text on delegated authority. Romans 13, verse, verses 1 through 4. just want to point out a couple of things to you about this. Now, this is a text that's focused on civil authority. And we've been talking about that tonight. We've been talking about civil authority. But look at uh, the things I've highlighted here. Uh, I actually think, let me see if this will work. How about that? Microsoft does do some pretty things pretty nice. Okay, all right, I can point it out to you. All right, you see, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. You see that word, hupotasso? Hupotasso? Compound word. Hupo means under, tasso means to place. So what it is saying here is you have been placed under this authority. Because no authority exists that God hasn't ordained. Is there workplace authority? Yeah. Is there family authority? Is there church authority? Is there civil government authority? And we're thankful for that because if there's not that authority, it's probably not going to go well, is it? So authority is a blessing. Authority is protection for us. So what he's saying here as a general principle is that God sovereignly places you under the authority that you're under, starting with your family, churches, your businesses and your communities, your government you're in. I know what you're thinking. Oh, man, you don't understand my family. Dysfunctional. Yeah, I understand. You don't understand my church. Dysfunctional. Yep, I get that. You don't understand my boss. He's really dysfunctional. Or my government, massively dysfunctional. Yeah, I know all that stuff exists. But guess what? God still works through it. We've got to be real clear. He's not surprised. He sovereignly puts you there for a reason, for a purpose. So when you get very clear that he places you under that authority, then you need to function recognizing his sovereign hand and putting you there. He hypotasoed you under that authority. Now, what's that authority supposed to be doing? What's the point of that authority? Well, here's a very interesting word here. Try this again. You see this word here? Your good? You see that? You can talk to me. So, you see that? All right. That's the Greek word agathos. Now, in the Greek language, there are two words for the word good. Uh, one of the sad things about the English language is it's not as robust as the Greek language. So the Greek language has this word agathos and a word called kalos. And I'll show you the difference between the two words. 
In Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, it says, a good tree bears good fruit. It happens, though, that's not exactly what the Greek says. The Greek says, an agathos tree bears kalos fruit. You hear the difference? Yeah, because it uses both words in the same sentence. And so it gives you a clue as to what, what they're trying to get to. When you say an agathos tree bears kalos fruit, well, the kalos is referring to the goodness of the fruit that came from a tree that was inherently good. So in this text, it's, it says agathos, which refers to the inherent goodness that, sh- that the, the civil government should help put into us so that we can bear kalos fruit in how we live. Civil government should be helping you grow in Christ. That's what it should be doing. And one of the ways it does this is by enacting biblically aligned laws, supporting a biblical worldview in the culture. And that's what we should be doing in organizations. We live under delegated authority. Whatever authority you have as a parent, in business, in your church, in your community, in in government structure, whatever authority you have, your job is to help people become agathos internally, which means they need to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what God's called them to do, to live the way God's called them to live. So delegated authority is absolutely essential. Here's some text here that talk about the importance of being under this authority. And we have, again, we have, I'm pointing out some words here in the Greek language. Titus 2.9 says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Now that, that is the word hupotasso. It's the same word again. Recognizing you've been sovereignly placed under that person. Colossians 3.22 says this, slaves obey, hupakuo. Now what's hupakuo sound like? Well, we know hup's under, so what's a kuo sound like? What if I said acoustics? What does it sound like? Sound. Yeah, we're talking about sound. Be under the sound. Be under the sound of your master. What's it mean to be under sound of your master? Oh, let me point out again. In the first century, who did the work? Slaves did the work. So when he's talking about slaves, he's talking about workers. Okay, so you've got to make that transition here. Otherwise, you think, well, Jesus is talking about slaves. We don't have slaves. No, no, he's talking about workers. Workers here, hupakuo, your earthly masters. You are under them sovereignly, and you listen with the intent of obedience. In fact, this same word, hupakuo, is used in Colossians chapter 3 to talk about children, obey your parents. It's the same word. So it's the same sense here in a workplace setting. We're supposed to hupakuo, our earthly masters. So are we getting the picture here? God made it all. He, we are simply stewards. We live, live and function under delegated authority. Okay, this is just kind of foundational reality. And here, to me, is a big reality that's almost totally missed. At least I, I'm having a hard time finding anybody that's seen this. And this is called the meta narrative. Matthew 13 is an example of the meta narrative where this parable of the kingdom is shared. Probably a better text. 
And the only reason I left that in there is because I'm using the notes that Doug Russell developed some years ago. Those are what, what you have there in front of you. So I'm just trying to honor his notes. If I were going to do it fresh, I would use a different text. I would use Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Now, you all know that text. You've been to church. All of you been to church? Been around church? Heard the gospel preached? Okay. You probably heard Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, haven't you? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's the Christian gospel, isn't it? That's what we call the gospel. 4, verse 10. 4. Now he's going to tell you why you got saved. Now you say, I got saved to go to heaven. Really? Well, what does the text say? For you were created in Christ Jesus... To do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. Now that's very interesting. When you prepare something in advance, what do you have? You have a plan. Now, do you guys plan your vacations? You sit down and chart out where you're going to go and where you're going to stay and what you're going to do. Do you do that? You have a plan? Yeah. Some people do. I tried one year. I tried not to plan it. It did not go well. And my wife was not happy with me, particularly on about the third night, and we couldn't find a hotel. It was not going well. So, we, I, you know, I repented, and I said, oh, never again. I, I'm naturally a planner anyway. I was just trying to go be outside the box, you know, trying to be something I'm not. And it didn't work well. So I, I saw again the importance of a plan. Well, God has a plan from all of eternity. It began with Christ. It will culminate with Christ. It's held together by Christ. It's all about Christ. You can read texts in Ephesians, for example, where it talks about God has this play going on. And we're, we're playing parts in this play. Now, just imagine that. Has anybody produced a play? Anybody here produced a play? Directed a play? Oh, we've got a few here. All right. So you got a play going on, and you know exactly what you want done, right? And you're expecting everybody to do what you say. You come on when you're supposed to come on. You say the lines you're supposed to say. You act the way you're supposed to act, and then you leave when you're supposed to leave. See, it's orchestrated. Well, that's kind of a picture here. God is orchestrating this play, and the theologians call this the meta-narrative. Now, if you, you speak Spanish, it's Grand Historia. I've been in Mexico recently, so I had to work that out. I had Maria, I had Maria over here help me figure this out. I, I, you know, Maria found out I was going. She said, well, how are you going to say meta-narrative? I said, I don't have a clue how to say meta-narrative in Spanish. So I got on my little tool on my, my uh, iPad and discovered Gran Historia. So the next day I saw her. I said, Gran Historia. She said, that's it. That's meta-narrative in Spanish. So I went down there, and it worked. It worked. They got it. So we got to talk about the meta narrative. But the meta narrative is the big picture, the big story of what God is doing through time. And all of us live in a certain context in time, and we have a role to play in that meta narrative. So Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, For I've been created in Christ Jesus to do specific works, which he calls kalos. Those are, in other words, he wants to see fruit. Fruit that lines up with him. 
That work that we do wherever we go, which includes the workplace, needs to reflect Christ. And it's all work that's consistent with his plan and his purpose. Now, see, that's, these are foundational truths that we have to get. Or we're never going to work well biblically in the workplace. So the meta narrative is about Christ, and it includes sin and death. I was uh, with a client not too long ago, and I was uh, observing some things. They were doing some training in this particular company. And this particular trainer uh, was kind of doing typical kind of worldly training, which means there was no discussion about Christ, the Bible, God, nothing. It was all just, you know, how to make yourselves a better you. Uh, and that has to be filtered through Scripture. So I had a chance to meet with this trainer, and I just sit down and talk to this trainer, and I listened to their methodology and you know where they learned all this. And then I said, "Well, what part does sin play in your thinking?" That trainer just stared at me. What? Sin? What sin got to do with business? I said, "Well, do you believe in evil?" Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, well, do you believe God is involved in the workplace, that he has a will for the workplace? Just stared at me. This trainer had no way to connect the dots there, could not see it. And so all this trainer could do was deliver the best that the world has to offer, and we call that best practices. If those of you, if you bought into the philosophy of best practices, may I challenge that tonight? The only way that can be sound is if it's best biblical practices. Then it's okay. But if you say just best practices, I was playing golf one day with my, my, one of my golf buddies. He is a partner with one of the big accounting firms. I mean, how many are there now? Are there five now? Something like that? Or four? I mean, after they went through all their scandals and everything, they only have a few left. But anyway, we're on this particular hole, and I knew that it's a big thing in his firm to be, we're about best practices. So I said, uh, do you believe that that's the best way to, to guide your clients is to teach them best practices? Yep, yep, we believe strongly that. I said, where do you get these practices? I said, well, um, you know, just we read a lot and we see, you know, what's popular and what people are, where success is happening, you know, that kind of thing. I said, so would it be a best practice if I'm able to go out and consistently rob a bank and not get caught, would that be a best practice? He looked at me like, I hadn't thought about that. I said, yeah, you haven't because you haven't filtered this through a biblical grid. You have not thought about what it is that God would consider to be best practices. Because until we start thinking about business biblically, we will think like the world. Because that's how we've been trained. Remember what happened in the middle of the 19th century? Anybody remember what happened? I put that up there to, to get you ready. I'm going to give you a minute to think about this before I give you this question. What happened in the middle of the 19th century? What happened relative to business? Industrial revolution happened. And what prompted that was a very godly man named Cyrus McCormick invented something. He discovered something. 
What did he discover? The reaper. Prior to the reaper, it would take basically one person to to harvest the food for himself and maybe one or two other people, max. With the reaper, one person could harvest the food for 300 people. So suddenly, you don't need nearly as much labor on the farm. So that means now people could go and, and find other work assignments. They didn't have to farm. This opened the door for things. At the same time, we have the railroads coming up. We have the telegraph. And suddenly, with the railroads, now you've got, you've got to have offices all over the place because you've got railroads going everywhere. So now you've got to train people and manage people and employ people. I mean, now it's a, it's, it's a whole different world when this is happening here. Now, prior to that, the only big organizations were the military. That was it. So now the Industrial Revolution brought a new challenge to the Christian community. And that was, how do you manage large organizations? Now, what did the Christian church do with that one? Huh? What did they do? So we don't know what to do. So we're not going to do anything. So it left it to the, the managers, the owners of these companies to figure it out. And that's what they did. Because they had no help. And they believed that the church was not relevant because the church did not engage. And so they developed their own thinking and their own ideas. Now, some of these were godly men. And so you had things like paternalistic capitalism developed. Anybody heard of that term, paternalistic capitalism? And that's where the employer functions like a father figure. And so I'm going to hire you and bring you into my company. And now I'm going to help you make good choices about how to live. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to build some low-cost housing. And I'm going to sell it to you at a really nice price. And I'm even finance it for you at a very low interest rate. And I'm going to put a park in. And I'm going to have people come in and help with you on an exercise program. And I'm going to have physicians over here in a clinic. And I've got lawyers here if you need medical care. And if you need help with, with, with nutrition, I'm going to have that for you. you know, we're going to have a community here, and all your, all your needs are going to be met here. I'm going to see that you have everything you need to do to live well, to make good choices, to line up with God. That was the mentality. Now, you can see that can be abused, or it can be used to really do good things. But see, these men were left without the oversight and the instruction of the Christian community. Those that were Christian looked to the scriptures to help them, but many of them, they had no help at all. So they developed the best they could do thinking largely without God. So their assumption was, in the beginning was man. And that's how they developed their philosophy and their value systems and the principles that they practiced. So it's very important that we get clear that God has a will, a will that he wants done in the workplace. Our authority to function in the workplace comes from him. The principles that we should use come from him. And we should be seeing our business in light of the meta narrative. So here's my question to you. What is your organization's role in the meta narrative? Now, Josh, you can't get up and leave. I want you to answer the question. What's your organization's role in the meta narrative? I want you to answer that question. I want you to answer it. Yes. Let's see. What is my organization's role in the meta narrative? I'll put the wrong time to stand up. 
one way or another, and using it for, for God's kingdom, so, and, and putting it in the right people's hands so they can do it well. So that's one of Okay. What do y'all think of that answer? Is that a pretty good answer? Pretty good, yeah. could, could we improve on it a little bit? Huh? You think we can improve? How could we improve on it? No, don't leave. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to help you here. We're going to help you. This... All right, how can we improve on that? Huh? How can we bring more biblical truth into that conversation? Get Josh out of the business. <laughs> how about the intentionality of God? Can we bring that in? Does he have the right to go do whatever project he wants to do? Does he have the authority to do that? No, he's got to go find his assignments. So which projects has God called him to, to go and bring his skill and ability to bear and transform that project to bring that project back in alignment with God? Where obviously... He's assuming it's gone astray. You hear that? Y'all are looking at me like, what is he talking about? I think if they all had some fruit, they'd throw it at you. I know they would. I would. Huh? No, I, you, you know that. All right, Gay. Yeah. 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 That's good. Okay, Josh. Thank you. I'll let you off the hook. You, 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 it was. It was a pretty good answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good answer. Well, I, I'll, I'll give you another example here. Um, a number of years ago, when we built our home, um, my wife hired a decorator, and this decorator happened to be also attending a seminary, a liberal seminary. Well. That was just too big a temptation for me. <laughs> so I began to dialogue with this lady. And uh, I challenged her. I said, uh, what do you think your work has to do with God's meta-narrative? She looked at me and said, no one's ever asked me that question. I said, that's okay, but are you willing to wrestle with it? She said, yes, I'll wrestle with it. So about three weeks later, she, she comes by and she says, I have an answer. Oh, I said, oh, really? Yeah, well, tell me. She says, here's the answer. My role is when I go into a home, I'm setting up the props for the play that the Holy Spirit is going to do in that home. I said, hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. Now you're beginning to think. You're thinking about what God is doing there, what, he's, what his will is, what he's trying to accomplish. And you're asking yourself relevant questions as you're making decisions. Lord, what is it you want to do here? How would you like to have a decorator like that? Well, that's the kind of decorator I want. Yeah. So you see how this works? It's important that we, we get this. This is foundational thinking about how to really live well in the, in the universe. We, we don't have the right just to go do whatever we want to do. You know, we're, most companies, it's all about maximizing the bottom line, maximizing the profit. Isn't that what you hear? No, in the kingdom, it's about maximizing what God wants to do. It's discerning what he wants to do. 
He's got something going on in every organization, with every person, with every situation. He's, everything's a setup. Do you realize that? Everything's a setup. God's setting something up. He's saying, are you going to seek me on this or not? Are you going to really pursue my will? Are you going to try to discern what I want? Or are you just going to go chase a dollar? Close some business. Try to put food on the table. Is that all you're about? You know, food, food on the table is not a problem for God. And most of us don't really believe that, but it's not. You know, the challenge he has with us is our hearts don't really believe him. We don't really trust him. Okay, so ready for section two. Let's see how we're doing. Great, I've used three-fourths of my time in section one. I can't, you just drew it out of me. What can I say? All right, so let me decide what we want to do here. Want to do some operating principles? Should we do that? Yeah. Or do you want to do hearing God, or do you want to do the last one? Understand the fivefold equipment. I'm going to let you make it. I'm going to be, you know, benevolent here. I'm going to let you make a choice here. So, uh, hearing God, hearing God, hearing God. You don't want the operating principles? Oh, it's for you. You do. Yeah. All right. We're going to do this. Democratically. All you want operating principles, raise your hand. Okay. If you want hearing God, raise your hand. If you want equipping, okay. I think hearing God wins. Okay, we're going to do hearing God. All right, so let me just get over there real quickly. It'll take a minute. Oh, this is a great discussion on success. I hate to pass that up, but you're going to make me do it. Okay, hearing God at work. All right. Do you expect to commune with God in the workplace? Is that an expectation you have? How many of you do construction? When you go on a job site, do you really hear communion with the Lord going on? You certainly hear the Lord's name. I wouldn't call it communing, but you hear the Lord's name. Well, I grew up in that industry, so I was very exposed to all of that. But that's not too different from just about anything else. All organizations, they have uh, their slimy underbellies, what some people call it. And the reality is that we don't really expect to commune with God. But look what Adam and Eve did. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve had daily fellowship with the Lord in the garden. Now, the garden was their workplace. They were there tilling the ground, caring for the plants and the animals. Have you ever thought about what God's original intent might have been had sin not come in? You know, one of the things, one of the thoughts I had was, you know, the garden was kind of the starting point. It was kind of like the seed. And God's intention was that they just can expand the garden. Now think about that. Wouldn't that have been pretty nice? Instead, they got kicked out of the garden, and now they have nothing. they got to start from scratch. So, But part of their daily activities was they communed with the Lord. After the fall, Adam and Eve were no longer fit to fellowship with the Lord because they were dead. Remember he said, if you eat of this tree that I told you not to, you will die. Now, that seemed to have several meanings. One is apparently spiritual death happened immediately. And physical death happened in time. 
Genesis 3.8 says, <clears throat> after they had sinned, that the man and the woman, wife, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the garden as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, of course, this is probably somewhat anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic means, you know, God appearing as like he's a man. You know, when you read in Scripture that God has a face or a hand, it's, it's speaking anthropomorphically, figuratively, trying to communicate. How does a holy being, a being so beyond us, so transcendent of our universe, communicate with a finite being? Well, he has to accommodate us. So it's language of accommodation. And so the Lord God is walking in the cool of the garden, and Adam and Eve hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, why did they hide? Because after they sinned, the first thing that happened was they were ashamed. They knew they were not fit for the presence of the Lord. And so what did they do about that? Made the fig leaves. Remember that? Now, I don't know anything about fig leaves, but I've read that fig leaves are very uncomfortable if you try to wrap yourself with them. I've not tried that, and I don't know, but that's what I've been told. So I'll go with that. And so they were, they're trying to cover up, and then the Lord shows up, and then what do they do? They hide. Which, what does that tell you? They knew the fig leaves weren't enough. The fig leaves were not adequate. Our performance, our attempt to make ourselves acceptable with God was not working. And we know it. So hide, quick. And so that's what they did. Of course, the Lord, you know, plays the charade with them as if he doesn't know. Don't you like when the Lord says, you know, acts like he doesn't know something? And he knows full well everything that's going on here. And so then he calls them to account, and they have to give an account for what they did. So one of the key things here, I think, to take away from this is that God's original intent is that we fellowship with him in the workplace. We commune with him in the workplace. And, of course, one of the ways we're going to do this is through prayer. But we have to have a spirit of anticipation that this is what God wants to do. You know, in Colossians chapter 4, it tells us, in the context of talking about the workplace, that there is a relationship we're supposed to have with relative to prayer. Does anybody remember what that relationship is? Some of you should know this. Huh? I can't understand you. He's talking about prayer. This is he had been talking about the workplace and how to work in the workplace, and then he talks about prayer and he gives us a word there of what our relationship to prayer should be. Devoted. He uses the word devoted to prayer. Now that's in the context of work. Just like here. We're supposed to be devoted to prayer. Now what does devoted mean? What's it mean? How many of you are married? There we go. Do you expect your spouse to be devoted to you? And what would that mean? Huh? There's a commitment level, faithfulness level, a focus, attentive, consistently pressing in and developing deeper and deeper relationship. Isn't that what it means? Wouldn't you like that? Well, that's a sense here of devotion in Colossians. 
We're called to be devoted to prayer. This is supposed to. Have, this is how we live, devoted to prayer. So we get a sense of how God intended work to be conducted. Now, one of the keys here is if you're going to be walking with God prayerfully, you need to be walking in your lane. I love Hughes' illustration of, of you know, on, what, on your mark, get set, go. Is that what you said? Okay. On your mark, getting in your lane. Well, that's the very terminology you have in Hebrews 12. It's, it's, it's a race. They use the... Back in those days, they had uh, Colosseum athletic events, had races, and you had a, a lane and a course you were supposed to run, and you didn't get to define that. That was defined for you. There were rules you had to follow. So you get in your lane, you run your race according to the rules. Great picture. So you need to, the first question you need to ask yourself is, where am I called to be? What is my assignment? And you need to get into that lane, and you need to run that, that race in your lane according to the will and ways of God. Now, we have to keep in mind as, as we run this race that our race does not define us. What defines us is our relationship with God, and now the race is the way we express our relationship with God. When you're, when you're living out of that fullness of Christ in you and running your race, you're doing what God has called you to do according to his will and his ways. One of the first things you should ask anybody Working with you or for you is what are you called to do? What has God sovereignly created you to do? Do you have any clue? Do you have any idea how to find out? You know, Scripture gives us guidance on how to do that. Those of you that, you know, been around the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar, you know about the C4 principle. We talk about that somewhat in the business school, but not in depth. Well, that's a tool we have in Scripture to help you find your race. And so... You need to learn that tool. You need to apply it to yourself, and you need to apply it to those that you're around. You know, management, first and foremost, is discerning who's called to be in this organization and what position has God ordained them to be in. Big question, isn't it? But if you don't prayerfully approach that, you're probably going to make decisions about your work based on what? Money. Where can I make the most money? I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard that. You didn't get that, did you? We passed you. Are you awake? All right. How about we test the word? You know, we live in a time where, you know, we prayer for most of us is not a serious thing. Prayer is more like, okay, I need God to take care of my problems. Uh, you know, I need. I have money problems. God, give me money. I have relational problems. God, fix those relationships or circumstance problems. God, fix those circumstances. Or I have health issues. God, fix the health issues. Uh, you know, we just want God to take care of things for us and make our lives easy and pleasant. That's normally how we approach prayer. But you know, prayer is a process of discerning the will of God. And the way you get in that process is you get in the process of being transformed. So just take a look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as a great example of this. He says here, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, he's looking back on the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, a powerful treaty on the, the doctrine of what Christianity is all about. I plead you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world is in all of us. It is our default. We have to be transformed out of that default to take on God's perspective. So he said, be transformed, which means he will empower us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This mind needs to be renovated. It needs to be redone. It's like Josh when he renovates a house. He's got to go in there, tear out all the bad stuff, and get down to something good, and now rebuild from the good. Well, that's what has to happen with us in our minds, our hearts, our worldviews have got to be transformed. Then you will be able to test and approve. Now, this is actually one word. It's called dokimazo. That's the Greek word. It means to test to see whether something is real. It's genuine. And what are we testing? The will of God. His good, pleasing, perfect, which is the word complete, will. In other words, if I want to discern the will of God, one of the key things for me to do is to be in the process of being transformed. I need to be in that process, and it gives me now the power through the Spirit to begin to discern His will deeper and deeper. So this is a key part of our being devoted to prayer. We have to be devoted also to being transformed. If you're going to hire somebody, do you make it a priority to find somebody that's an intercessor? It doesn't matter what you're hiring them for. No, we don't do that, do we? Did you know... When God wanted to, to build the tabernacle, and he laid out exactly the, the job description to run the project, do you know what he said about what he wanted, the man he wanted to do this? He would be a man full of the Holy Spirit. Now, a man full of the Holy Spirit is going to be a man of prayer, a man devoted to prayer. A man who's being transformed, who's being aligned with the will and ways of God. That was his criteria for a construction project. In fact, that's the first time in Scripture that said of anyone that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that supervisor on that construction project. Have you ever thought about all the connections to, to the workplace, between the workplace and, and you know, Christianity or just God? starting with Adam being put in the garden, he was there to work. And then these guys filled with the Holy Spirit are building the tabernacle. And then Jesus was a carpenter, and all the people he deputized were workplace guys, except for the tax collector, who was obviously converted. You see the connection? I mean, this one after another connecting God to the workplace. Because, see, God sees the workplace as a holy place. It's a place that he designed for us to do what he called us to do and what he created us to do. And so when we begin to see it the way he sees it, it'll look different to us. And suddenly being devoted to prayer will be a priority. I would suggest, I would challenge you, if you hire people, you want to, you want to ask yourself, is this person being transformed because if they're being transformed, then they have the ability to discern the will of God on a whole new level. And are they devoted to prayer? And I would submit they're probably coupled. I don't think a person that's 
truly being transformed would be anything other than devoted to prayer. Would you? I think that would be one of the marks. You claim you're being transformed? Well, tell me about your prayer life. I'd like to hear, you know, I'd like to hear you pray. How is it you pray? You know, we have marketplace prayer at our church, and it's, it's, I think, one of the things that we do that I think we do fairly well. And what so blesses me as I hear these men pray is that we've committed to praying biblical prayers. And so somebody comes to us with a prayer request, and, you know, it's interesting. um, I don't know really why they send prayer requests to us, because why don't they just come? I mean, they ought to just come, but I don't know. Some of them don't want to come at 6.30 in the morning. I don't know what the deal is. They think it's too early or something. But these guys show up. They'll show up in the morning at 6.30, and they're going to pray biblical prayers. It doesn't matter what you ask them to pray. They're going to take your prayer request, and they're going to put it into a biblical context. So you come to them and say, hey, I'm out of work. I need a job. They're going to say, great, but we don't pray for jobs. Well, why not? Well, because we believe God has an assignment for you. And most people think jobs is something they have to do. No, your assignment is something you're privileged to do, you're called to do. We're going to pray that God releases you to discover your assignment. We've actually had people say, no, thank you. (laughs) Really? Okay. Other people come and say, I need a bunch of money. Oh, okay. Well, we don't pray that way. Well, why not? Well, we believe that if you line up with the will and ways of God, that he takes care of everything else. So we pray for alignment. And we've had people say, well, don't pray for me. I mean, this is sad. These are, these are professing Christians that show up in church that are rejecting biblically aligned prayers. I know my time's out. I'm, I'm up. I've got to stop. But let me just encourage you. Pray biblical prayers. Be devoted to prayer. Be in transformation. These are key ways that you now begin, become sensitive to the Spirit and you line up with the will and ways of God in your life, and you help others line up with the will and ways of God, and then you will bear fruit that God values. Fruit that will remain. What it says in Luke 12, true riches. True riches. Do you want that? True riches? This is the way you do it. You've got to do it biblically. Well, Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for the revelation of your Son and how you care about the details of life. And Father, we, we thank you that you care about the workplace and we have assignments there to represent you, to be your stewards, to honor you, to glorify you, to walk with you, to commune with you. Lord, give us grace to do that well. Father, keep us in the process of transformation. And Father, make us men and women who are devoted to prayer. So Father, we commit ourselves to you. And we say, Lord, your will be done according to your ways in our life through the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.